This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Green News Report, The Progressive, The Young Turks, The Jimmy Dore Show, Here and Now, The Mike Malloy Show, and The Show. And a note for our more sensitive listeners that this episode is kind of a downer, so if you're looking for hope, I'd wait until the next episode. The next round of United Nations climate talks are now underway in Doha, Qatar. Here and in the future, governments must stick to the tasks and timetables that are necessary for an adequate response to climate change. For the next two weeks, delegates from the UN's 193 member countries will push through the next phase of negotiations for an international climate treaty to reduce emissions of heat-trapping greenhouse gases that cause global warming. That treaty would take effect in 2020. Again, as in previous years, the primary divide at the conference is between developed and developing countries. Who will go first in cutting emissions and by how much? Rich, already developed Developed countries have benefited historically from their past emissions. Developing economic powerhouses like China and India are reluctant to slow their growth, and the poorest countries are struggling to lift their citizens out of deep poverty. The irony, of course, is lost on no one that Qatar is the first member of OPEC to host the annual climate talks. U.S. envoy Jonathan Pershing reiterated the United States' position that any new agreement must include all nations. Citing the political climate in the U.S., he has resisted pressure from developing countries at the conference to commit the U.S. to steeper cuts than those already announced by President Obama. I do not anticipate that the United States will, in the pre-2020 timeframe, modify the commitment that we have made in the political context for something approaching, in the context of legislation, 17 percent below 2005 levels by the year 2020. You know, Des, we cover these UN conferences every year. Is there any indication that they are any closer to an actual agreement that could actually be signed here in the United States? Well, what tends to happen at these conferences is they wait to the last minute to make actual progress. This treaty deadline is until 2015, so there might not be any visible progress until then. As a backdrop to the conference, grim conclusions in two new reports released in conjunction with the negotiations. The first report calculates that current worldwide emissions mean that current cuts pledged by member nations will not be enough to meet the agreed-upon limit of global temperatures rising no more than 2 degrees Celsius. The report says the world is on the path to see a 4 degrees Celsius temperature rise in coming decades. And the second, more disturbing study indicates that permafrost, the frozen ground that stores massive amounts of greenhouse gases, has already begun melting due to rising temperatures, says lead author Kevin Schaefer of the U.S. National Snow and Ice Data Center. Now, the available projections of future climates don't include the permafrost emissions and don't account for the permafrost carbon feedback. If these projections had included the permafrost carbon feedback, all those temperatures would be shifted upward, which means that any emissions targets that you based on available projections might be too low. So all of the startling scientific reports from the U.N. up till now predicting global warming have not included the warming that would be caused by the melting permafrost? Right. They did not have the data at the time. Now they do. So it could be worse than even they think. Exactly.
Another global climate conference is underway in Qatar and things aren't going well there. Japan, Russia, and even Canada are now saying they won't sign on to an extension of the Kyoto Accords, which the U.S. never signed on to, by the way. The decision of these big industrialized countries is dashing hopes that we're going to get the kind of action we need to slow down the perilous pace of global warming. Just before the conference started, the World Bank came out with a report called Turn Down the Heat. It warned of unprecedented heat waves, severe drought, and major floods in many regions with serious impacts on ecosystems. And the UN Environment Program warned that steeper and more costly actions will be required very soon. The problem is the U.S. isn't in any way prepared to take those actions, as Barack Obama himself noted in his press conference after being reelected. If the message is somehow we're going to ignore jobs and growth simply to address climate change, I don't think anybody's going to go for that. I won't go for that, he said. Well, this selfish growth is paramount philosophy is what spurred on the climate crisis, and adherence to it will only impede the resolution of that crisis. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. When I grow up, I want to be a forester, run through the moss on high heels. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. We've seen the data now. People want something to be done about climate change, whether it's just a long string of events, whether Sandy has swayed some people. They want Obama and the government to do something. So, so what does Obama think? What, what approach is he going to take? He's actually spoken on this a little bit recently. Um, we have one quote that sounds pretty positive. Let's go to that first. As you know, Mark, we can't attribute any particular weather event to climate change. What we do know is the temperature around the globe is increasing faster than was predicted even 10 years ago. We do know that the Arctic uh, ice cap is melting faster than was predicted even five years ago. I am a firm believer that climate change is real, that it is impacted by uh, human behavior and carbon emissions. And as a consequence, I think we've got an obligation to future generations to do something about it. So that sounds pretty good. I'm encouraged by that. It's real, and we've got an obligation to do something about a really good I answer. I didn't like the first part with, uh, like, it's not like Sandy. We didn't have a hurricane because of climate change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. it tells people, like, we had hurricanes before. Right. Um, and if it snows, it doesn't mean that climate change has reversed itself. Right. Exactly. right. Yeah. So, great answer. Uh, now, a little bit more on climate change. Let's see if that uh, theme <laughs> continues. You know, understandably, I think the American people right now have been so focused and will continue to be focused on our economy and jobs and growth that you know, if the message is somehow we're going to ignore jobs and growth simply to address climate change, I don't think anybody's going to go for that. I won't go for that. If, on the other hand, we can shape an agenda that says we can create jobs 
advance growth and make a serious dent in climate change and be an international leader, I think that's something that the American people would support. Listen that. to the progressive lion roar, <laughs> standing up for our positions. Yeah, that I, I, that you know, answer I did not like as much. I, I give that answer an, an eight. I have no problem with that answer. Really? Yeah. yeah. No, I, yeah. So JR is in your camp, so we can have a fun uh, time debating this. Uh, that answer, uh, let me decode it for you. We will definitely be doing the Keystone Pipeline, and then I will also do renewable energy. I will do investments in there so I can say, hey, I did the jobs through the Keystone Pipeline, and I did renewable energy. Voila, balanced Obama. Well, I mean, first of all, I, it's got to be balanced. I mean, we do have to create jobs, and we do have to get the economy growing in the right direction again. And no, I don't I'm anti-jobs. <laughs> I've, I've always been on the record. Right, sure, you are anti-jobs. Um, uh, but why, uh, why, can't, why can't you do both? Of course you should do both. He's got to do 3,000 things at the same time. Okay, so two things about that. One, Keystone Pipeline actually does not create that many jobs. It's a myth. It, because jobs is a proxy for... Uh, Profits, right? What they care about is the profits. They pretend that it's like a big thing. So, in the does it create about? Uh, well, you know, I don't want to get into the numbers. Because I don't have the direct audience. Yeah, it doesn't me, create but that it, many it jobs. creates some temporary jobs in building it. No building, question. Yeah. And then that dissipates, and the number of permanent jobs are very small, right? Yeah, just okay, and that's fine. All right, but the reality is that it's they. That's not what why they want to build. I, it. I, okay, I, come on. Look, come we on. have other evidence today about the Keystone Pipeline and the senator. You mentioned it. The senators, the bipartisan group of senators from states, obviously from campaigns that got money from big oil, pressuring Obama to build the northern part of the pipeline so it go through their states. Like that one's that's easy, yeah. right? But I mean, the president getting up there in answer to that question, which I don't know what the specific question was, and saying that we need to have an agenda that creates jobs and also does this, that that can't because the question might well have been that what's the is that going to be the focus of your campaign? I don't see the. To me, that wasn't a guy saying, I'm doing the pipeline. So, okay, now to me, as I was looking at him, he's looking down and he's calculating, how do I say this? Let's remember how I say, <laughs> right, jobs, keystone, oh, renewable energy, climate change. Come okay, you, George no, Bush reading no, Putin's heart? <laughs> yeah, no, no. I looked into his soul. I know. Uh, well, okay, I, I looked into his pipeline, and that's how I know. Uh, Look, here's uh, oh, uh, that was a mistake. Okay. <laughs> Regret. I immediately regret that decision. Okay. Anyway, so, uh, and the second part of uh, how they mislead on the Keystone Pipeline is, my God, energy independence. We need energy independence. That's why we need to do this, right? But when you look at it, what did President Obama approve in the last term? The southern half of the Keystone Pipeline, which takes the oil from this country and brings it down to the coast, Gulf Coast, where it ships it out to other countries. It literally takes our oil and gives it to other countries. Now, we make a profit, yada, we, meaning ExxonMobil, yeah. yada, yada, make a profit. But these are all lies to justify the profit-making. So they don't care about the jobs. They don't care about energy independence. So when I hear Obama saying that, the reason I say this, Ben, is because I've heard that Republican talking point 88 times. And so that's why, to me, it sends a message. And it's... And I grant you and Jr. who I talked off air about what, this, what, what, is that it's subtle. But what does he need to send a message for? Like he, he won. Build a pipeline. Like, who cares? What's the subtlety? That I think that he wants to seem bipartisan. I think it's him standing up and saying, once again, look, I'm bringing two people together, as if the conservatives are going to give him any credit if he does build the Keystone Pipeline. I don't think that they will. Oh, yeah. And and there's this false equivalency that, like, we can either, you know, we can we can build jobs, or you guys don't care about jobs, you just want to protect the environment. Look up the, the, the Apollo Initiative. Like, there's a, a massive plan on how we can make millions of new jobs 
by investing in renewable energy, perhaps not through Solyndra, but through other companies, we can both protect the environment and we can get the jobs. It's not just pipelines. Yeah, and it is frustrating, that, as you say, people imagine that if we just drill here, then the oil company is just going to hand out buckets of gasoline to the people living nearby. Yeah, there you go again with the nerds a, a, a speak. Is, uh, is Apollo Initiative part of Battlestar Galactica or <laughs> Star Trek? It's Apollo is part, on BSG. It's part of Agenda 21. Uh, so, yeah, oh, that's right. JR. Only, only, couple, only a couple things here. Um, we're talking about this specific press conference. If there's something he's leaning towards with the Keystone Pipeline, or if he's leaning towards the Apollo agenda and all these things and other aspects, go ahead and, and have a problem with that. But we're reading into this particular statement where he said none of that. Where he didn't mention it, where he didn't hint at it. Where he just said, <laughs> we can do more than one thing with my second uh, term. And we go, oh, you know what that means? Because I read something five, five, five different things, five other places, so that means he said that here. <laughs> doesn't mean that. But that's my job, yeah. <laughs> is to read the five other things and interpret his really subtle statements for what they really right. are. And, and the thing is, come on, you're going to give me that I have a decent track record no, on Obama no, on that? Yeah, you have a decent track, track record on Obama on that because that was the thing that, that he was talking about, how things will change and this and this will happen. He said that in the first term and it didn't. Or some things did because we don't give him credit for shit, first of all. So we found a new way to bitch is what I've, is what I've discovered. <laughs> and we have plenty to bitch about. When he doesn't do it, Go the fuck off on him. I'll be right there with you. Well, I'm going to go one step. Oh, we will. Let me go one step further. And it's because I agree with JR, right? Yeah. You're just a little bitch, which is what I heard. <laughs> That's what I heard. Um, well, I think uh, we could all agree with that. Yeah. But, like, the, like, first of all, yeah. I wanted to see Obama's pipeline. You're, 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 you're a good interpreter, but you're not unbeaten. Okay. Right? Okay. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, and uh, so, like, the, the important thing is to keep the pressure on for dealing with real efforts to deal with climate change. And that's a different thing than interpreting what he said in this project. Nonetheless, I mean, we're going to have fun. That was my last point, because yeah. I didn't need to say this part. We talked about how he campaigned on, or he didn't campaign on anything with it. I don't know how many times I got sick of him saying, yes, he said the clean coal stuff. And we were like, ugh, why are you saying this? And he kept saying, new forms of energy. We're going we're gonna to put money towards new forms of energy, new ways of doing things. And we're going to do the stupid things like clean coal, Keystone Pipeline. He hinted those things. But he's trying to do everything, which is a bad idea. But it doesn't mean he's trying to do 100% of the bad ideas. He's trying to do both, which we've all agreed to. He tries to do what everybody wants to do, which is a bad idea, because half of your agenda is wrong. Yeah, I, I remember. So we I, can't interpret it to be the other no, thing. No, no, but I'm not. I'm not saying he's only doing the wrong things. I don't want anybody to get that uh, impression. Look, he, Bill Cosby, a long time ago, I saw him. He did a stand-up routine, like maybe 20 years ago. He said, I, I don't know what the way to succeed is, but I know the way to fail. And that's trying to please everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, and... Obama literally calls his energy plan all of the above. Like, hit, trying to please everybody. And John's right, he's not going to please anybody. The minute he does Keystone, the Republicans are like, you see that? It's a center-right country. We knew it. Now look at Benghazi! Right? Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, we're going to break the tie here because we're two to two tied on this specific interpretation of this specific couple of sentences. <laughs> so in order to finish this fun uh, little battle, we bring in the Chief Justice. <laughs> I, I knew the Chief Justice didn't want to weigh in on this. Uh, I know, but, but Jesus, the Chief Justice did not ask one question during oral arguments. I know, I know. Yeah. So, Jesus, I was positive you weren't paying attention, but the only other person I could have had break the tie was Michael, who I'm positive would have voted against. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, why can't Michael talk? Because I know we win 3-2. There's no question. It was yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that's true. That's true. All right. So uh, maybe I screwed that up. Anyway, Chief Justice, yeah. on your gut. Can you ask Michael to come in too when you go in that other room. Oh God. Just ask Michael to come in if he's in that other room. And then Anna's gonna have to break the tie. She wasn't even here. Chief Justice, final <laughs> yeah. ruling. I thought that. Yeah. So, what are we talking I'm about? I'm with Jake. 
Yes! yes. What a victory! Victory! <laughs> victory. <laughs> Clarence Thomas is what does Scalia say? It's bullshit. Uh, hey, hey, listen. You say in your... Uh, if, if you'd like to go to wine country, go to Northern California. <laughs> the perfect UN Ambassador Susan Rice could benefit financially if the controversial Keystone XL pipeline from Canada is approved. According to a review of financial disclosure reports by On Earth magazine, Rice, a political target of Republicans right now and the top candidate to replace Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, has significant investments in companies that would profit if the proposed pipeline is approved. President Obama is expected to make a decision on that later this year. And so when he makes that decision if he decides to go with the pipeline republicans will complain it was only done to help susan rice right (laughs) who knows what they'll say yeah they won't say that Three new studies are adding pressure to world governments now meeting in Doha, Qatar this week for the latest round of UN climate talks. We can say with a level of confidence that 2012 will most likely be amongst the warmest years. That was Jerry Linguosa, Deputy Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization, on their projection that 2012 is on track to be the ninth hottest year on record, confirming the long-term trend of rising global temperatures. If it hadn't been for the cooling effects of the La Nina weather pattern earlier this year, they say, 2012 would rank even hotter. In another study, sea levels are rising faster than predicted, 60% faster than projected by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. A study by the Potsdam Institute confirms that global temperatures are rising as predicted by the IPCC. However, those observations also indicate sea levels are rising much faster than the IPCC predictions. They say, quote, the new findings highlight that the IPCC is far from being alarmist on sea level rises and, in fact, in some cases, rather underestimates possible risks. That study on sea level rise comes on the heels of the one released earlier this week that showed that the melting of permafrost will also add to temperatures that had been previously unpredicted by scientists. That's right. A third study indicates that ocean acidification, called the evil twin of global warming, is already showing signs of damaging the shells of an important plankton species in the southern ocean around Antarctica. And why do we care that plankton is disappearing? Because plankton is the foundation of the ocean food chain. Oh, like I'm supposed to care about the ocean food chain. Every step turns the solid land to grief And it's falling down, falling down, down into the sea 
Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. Alright, so I was watching the Morning Joe. And because you know, you know why I like to watch Morning Joe, you guys. Because you like to start the day out angry. I like to go to bed angry. <laughs> That's right. I like to go to bed angry. But hey, that, and you love your coffee. And I love my coffee. Thank you very much. <laughs> so they were talking about uh, a global warming, and here's what uh, they brought in the weatherman from uh, the Morning Joe weatherman to talk about global warming, as if he knows something. And uh, here's what he had to say. New Orleans, we spent almost $15 million to do the flood mitigation there. Isaac came, no damage whatsoever. Estimated on this one was $50 million. They're saying it would cost about another $15 billion to protect New York City from surges. Do we do that? Do we go and build the protection in New York Harbor to protect lower Manhattan? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Yes. <laughs> Especially yes. now that I live in Lower Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually so. Do we do it? Do we protect Lower Manhattan? No, we we see if we can move Manhattan to um, New Upper Hampshire. Manhattan. What are you? What are you, are you? Why spend all that money protecting New York unless we can be absolutely sure the next hurricane is going to be just as bad? Right. <laughs> right. We don't want to be gypped and it just goes right by. Yes. Right. And what if it turns out there isn't global warming and we uh, we don't get our money's worth on all that protection? <laughs> We built. Why, why spend all that money when the next storm of the century isn't coming till next year? <laughs> I, let's go. So they, Jonathan Cates. So wait, he he said the math, didn't he? He said it's going to cost about fifty billion. He said to 50, fix. He said they. In, he said in New Orleans they spent fifteen billion dollars, and then they had a hurricane, and nothing happened. He said, "Now are we prepared to spend?" Is that what he said? Fifty billion? Let's but see what it, he said. It was Fifteen. I think. Fifteen billion. Fifteen billion to shore up uh, Southern Manhattan or Lower Manhattan. Well, the the it's storm like cost New York and New Jersey somewhere on the order of sixty to seventy billion dollars in damages. Yes. So I think that fifteen billion dollars is very well spent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah those- and also, you know, part of his logic too is that. Uh, well, there was no, you know, we built all that in New Orleans and nothing happened. And it's certainly never going to happen. You know. <laughs> if it didn't happen by now. now it's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah, those suckers in New Orleans spent a fortune, huh? And boy, is their face red. <laughs> <laughs> Just look at it this way. Dry that's, as a bone. <laughs> that 50 or $60 billion in damage it damages, that's a job creator right there. A lot of cleanup. Yes. That's true. A lot it of is. rebuilding mm-hmm. stuff. Saying that's, uh, what Jim is saying is absolutely true. It's the shock doctrine. She, oh my God! Then you mean Naomi uh, Wolf? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, so the economies on disasters. So so then they uh, they go ahead and they throw it over to Jonathan Capehart. You know, he's from the Washington Post, and he has this to say about it. 
earlier about all these storms crippling us. How are we going to pay for all of these, all of these super or the aftermath of all of these superstorms when we have, we're, when we're $16 trillion in debt, trying to figure out how we're going to lower the debt, trying to figure out how we're going to pay for all of the obligations we have to pay for now, and then you have the added um, impact of these superstorms. Where's the money going to come from? Um, I don't know. Damn these liberal superstorms trying to <laughs> suck money out of the. That's the dumbest <laughs> I've ever heard. Where are we gonna get the money? Where's it gonna? I don't know. Maybe. What do you think? What do you think we're gonna get it from? The people who want to have protection. How about that? It's called taxes. You pay for it, and then you fix it. What do you want to do? You want us to? I think we should break into a bank on Mars. That's where we'll get it from. What do you care? They're gonna. They're going to name the next uh, storm Hurricane Welfare Queen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we, we can't ask the wealthiest Americans to pay for it because they're cheapskates and they'll yell at us. <laughs> <laughs> I hate when they do that. <laughs> but on the bright side, if we let the storm kill more people, there'll be more, I mean, there'll be more dead people and they won't be on Medicare. Maybe we could take that money, shift it over to the hurricane. Oh, yeah, we, maybe good. leaving out. Yeah, that's what I'm, this is what I'm talking about. We don't want to take money away from our nuclear arsenal that's protecting us from the hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> when are we going to wake up to the fact that these people whose homes and business have been destroyed are bleeding us dry? <laughs> <laughs> They're takers. They really are. I mean, we, if we keep spending money every time there's a big storm, we're going to have a huge deficit. <laughs> <laughs> wonder what that would be like. Okay. So then, the, so then Joe Scarborough... The, first of all, this is just... This is what you, t I think it's too early for them to be doing a pundit show. It's just like, everybody says the dumb, like Jonathan Capehart <laughs> is usually pretty smart. And that's one of the dumbest things I've, where's the money going to come from? Where the hell you think it's going to come from? And isn't it funny that no one ever, ever asked that question before we went into Afghanistan or Iraq? No one ever said, right. where's the money going to come from? How can we can afford this? A 14-year war? Are you kidding? No one ever asked that question. Ever. Still today. And by the way... And uh, you would think, um, you would think uh, Joe Scarborough would be upset because didn't the storm uh, destroy Scarborough country? <laughs> 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 so so Joe Scarborough, I don't have a clip of it, but he goes on to tell a story about how on the golf course he met this Republican guy who's really wealthy donor, big, big wealthy Republican, and uh, they're talking about global warming, and he's like, well, you just have to look at the evidence. You can't ignore it. And so that was his big, like, hey, look, Republicans aren't all Neanderthals talk, I guess. That was Joe Scarborough trying to see, say, look. And then, so then we come back to the studio, and uh, this is what John Heilman says. The question, Joe, is for people in your party, and you know, like to, to the guy you were just talking about. You know, you can be a conservative and still believe in science. Isn't that kind of part of the message here? No, that's not the message. The message was <laughs> you, can, you can believe in science on the golf course. <laughs> if I listen long enough... To you, I'll find a way to believe that it's all true. Knowing that you lied straight faced while I cried, still I look to find a reason. Well, recently got an email that read, I have the cover story in this week's Boston Phoenix. It's a kind of open letter to my old colleagues, and it's the hardest thing I've ever written. 
Well, since we are in a way former colleagues of the author, it caught our eye. When Stevenson was senior producer of the NPR program On Point, which is produced down the hall from us, he was also an editor at the Boston Globe and the Atlantic. Then he became a climate activist who now says journalists have failed miserably in covering climate change. Now, his article made us think of Hallen's spheres. This is the theory of media coverage created by political scientist Daniel Hallen. Three spheres, the sphere of deviance, you don't have to cover this wacky stuff, the sphere of legitimate controversy in which journalists are obliged to cover both sides, not be advocates, and the sphere of consensus in which journalists don't have to present an opposing view. So without naming it, Wen says most journalists now place climate change in that sphere. So he asks, why aren't they advocating? Why aren't they covering climate change as a crisis? As he writes, it's the biggest story of this or any generation. So why the hell aren't you putting it on the front page and leading newscasts with it every day? Wen Stevenson joins us in the studio, and you have gotten a lot of reaction to this. Wow, yeah, the reaction has been huge. But I want to say this was not a fun piece to write. There were real relationships on the line. Sure. Um, I knew I might even lose some friends over this piece because have you? I named some names. I don't know. Yeah, well. I don't know yet. But well, I, I want to say, you know, there are no, no victory laps here of any kind, but there are also no apologies. Um, I'm saying that we're actually not talking about the real story, the real issue, the actual scale and urgency and severity of the climate crisis. The crisis. And, and you say, you know, compared to the AIDS crisis. That's right. Silence <laughs> or near silence on the issue of climate and just how urgent the crisis is, is really tantamount to, um, during the AIDS crisis, silence equals death. That was a rallying cry of AIDS And I said, climate silence equals death. Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, pick it up there, because we could see so many people dying of one related thing, AIDS, when finally the focus was on uh, what was killing particularly gay men in particular in the beginning. We could see those deaths. People might be saying, you can't really see the deaths now. We know they happen. We just had uh, people die from Hurricane Sandy, and just about every scientist attributes the size of Sandy to warming water. So mm -hmm. you know, people are saying, yeah, we, we know that Hurricane Sandy was that size because of a global warming, and we know there were deaths, but people aren't seeing it. As a journalist, Mark Hertzgard, who I know has been a guest on this show, reported not too long ago in uh, the Daily Beast, big study commissioned by 20 countries uh, most affected currently by climate change, mostly in the global south, pointed out that as many as 400,000 people are now dying every year around the world as a result of climate change. Well, I mean, you know, if you look outside uh, our own world, David Remnick writes in just this week's New Yorker, the European heat wave of 2003 left 50,000 people dead, the Russian heat waves and forest fires of 2010, droughts last year in Texas mm -hmm. and Oklahoma. These have all left deaths uh, in their path. What aren't you seeing from journalists and what would you mm -hmm. like to see? What I'd like to see is not tying ourselves in knots over just exactly to what degree Superstorm Sandy can be attributed to climate change. There's a real scientific debate over that, of course. What I would like to see is a serious national conversation about what we're supposed to do about the climate crisis that's bearing down on us right now. Nothing I wrote is controversial. You know, I pointed out that scientific consensus says that we need to reduce global greenhouse emissions by at least 25% by the year 2020. That's eight years from now. And by at least 80% by 2050. 
in order to have a reasonable chance, I believe something like a 50-50 chance, of keeping global average temperature rise to 2 degrees Celsius. That's been the consensus, that anything above that would not be conducive to civilization as we know it. And yet, there's, when was the last time you actually uh, heard or saw a serious conversation in our mainstream media about what it would actually take to hit those targets? Well, I mean, of course, the biggest complaint has been we didn't hear it at all during the election. Mm -hmm. But isn't it the job of the politicians to drive that conversation? And you were very critical of your former employer, The Atlantic. And James Fallows in The Atlantic writes a piece saying, you know, I disagree with some of the things Wen said, but I'm really glad he wrote the article. He wants readers to read your article. He took on this uneasy question for a lot of journalists. Whose job is it to tell the public what they should care about? Isn't it the politician's job? Shouldn't, you know, it doesn't the fault lie with Romney and Obama that they didn't bring it up? Or are you saying, as Fallows thinks you're saying, that it's the fault of the journalists for not asking them about it? I think it's absolutely both. Of course it's the fault of the politicians for not talking about it. But when we're dealing with something as extraordinary as the situation that we're facing, it just seems to me that if journalists are going to live up to their responsibility to the public, that they need to take some leadership here. Well, and Fallows points out other times journalism has. Race relations, um, the Vietnam War, slavery. There have been times when it was the press that led the way. Absolutely. And the climate crisis is so vast, it's going to require something like a society-wide mobilization to really deal with it seriously and in very short order. And it's going to require a real struggle inside uh, newsrooms and editorial offices to figure out exactly what is the role of the media, of journalists. Well, here's where you raise some questions for me, Wen. Mm -hmm. you've, you've definitely taken a side in the issue, and you say that that's freed you from a sort of insidious form of self-censorship based on what you say is a misguided image that um, you know mainstream media types have, that they're not allowed to take a stand on an issue. And I found myself writing in the margin, but wait a minute, there is no fray. The accepted science is that there is, there is climate change. Why does it have to be that you're either an advocate or you're not? Why isn't it just good journalism? Was, ah. You know, Rachel Carson was a journalist. That's an excellent point, but I think what we have to distinguish here is between the science and the politics and the policy. Absolutely true that the scientific consensus shouldn't be politicized in any way. Unfortunately, it has been in this country, largely due to uh, the efforts at sowing doubt and misinformation on the part of uh, the fossil fuel industry. That needs to be highlighted for sure. But when it comes to what to do about this crisis, how to write absolutely about it. a fray. Addressing this is going to require something far beyond politics as usual. We can't just vote for our elected leaders um, and then expect them to lead us where we need to go, especially when they have to worry about their campaign contributions. We have to lead them. And by we, you mean the media. We have questions about that. Wen Stevenson, former editor at the Boston Globe and the Atlantic, now climate activist. What do you think about his charge that journalists are failing in covering climate change as a crisis? Go to hearnow.org. Let us hear from you. More with Wen uh, in one minute. Here now. 
Welcome back to our conversation with Wen Stevenson, former producer of NPR's On Point and an editor at the Boston Globe and Atlantic Magazine, who's now a climate activist accusing his former colleagues of failing to cover climate change like the crisis it is. And as if on cue, a David Remnick writes a piece in The New Yorker this week saying climate change is a bigger challenge for the new administration than the fiscal cliff. He goes on to say that in 2010, the Pentagon declared that climate change might destabilize governments, spark mass migration, famine, pandemics, military conflict. As David Remnick writes, this is the Pentagon talking not, you know, woolly radicals. He also says President Obama, to his credit, has secured billions for energy conservation upgrades, talked Detroit into a better gas mileage standards, and last week in his acceptance speech mentioned climate change once again. And as David writes, that's good, but at this late date, he gets no points. Well, when Stevenson would say the same thing about David's article, good. But climate change needs to be on the front page of newspapers every day. So when, in voicing your frustration with journalists and their coverage, of climate change, you ask, you know, why did the media cover the Occupy movement more than the climate crisis? That's an excellent question. But I guess what I'm saying here is that journalists need to be advocates. We need to rethink where exactly that line is and whether there should be a line. Well, you begin your piece with a visit to your old employer and former colleague uh, Peter Canellis at the Globe, the Globe editorial meeting, a Boston Globe editorial meeting. In which, you know, which is in your mind a sort of a mini protest. You're there to talk to them about their uh, climate change coverage, and he asks you questions about the Keystone Pipeline and cap and trade and and current stories. What was wrong with that? What was wrong with him asking you about these very specific stories? There was actually nothing wrong with them, and it's and it's to be expected when you go in and have a, a sit down with the editorial board of a newspaper that they're going to ask some devil's advocate questions and, and so on. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that the nature of the questions were actually a way of changing the subject, in a way avoiding the conversation that I'd very clearly laid out, um, which, as I said, we need to see a much greater sense of urgency in the media's coverage of this crisis. We need to actually cover it like a crisis. And we need to pay attention to the movement that's being built here to address it. You said he asked you the kind of narrow, incremental, politically straight-jacketed questions reflecting a mindset that was leading us off the climate cliff. We asked Peter Canellis, the editorial page editor, for a response. Um, he doesn't agree with your description of the meeting. He said, uh, your article makes a basic error in equating the questions we asked him with our underlying positions. The Globe's editorial board is committed to probing all sides of major issues and asking critical questions of the advocates who come in to the board seeking their support. It seems like your position still stands. You don't, you don't, you're not talking about reporting every now and then. You're talking about sort of a full-scale front page we are in crisis. That's right. Look, I respect Peter. He's a good guy. We work together. I have nothing personally against Peter, but I make no apologies here. Well, uh, the president spoke yesterday, and in his press conference, he said he's committed to working to reduce carbon emissions, but added that the, co the economy is a bigger concern right now. Is that your biggest challenge? You know, you're competing with this idea of jobs, the economy, when you're talking about something that is less tangible for the average person than a lost job. Yes, because what you're describing there is the business-as-usual mindset that, that some of us are trying to blow up. For the president to put climate change lower down on, on uh, his agenda 
not only does it go against what he campaigned on in 2008, when he actually cited very specifically those targets of 80% by 2050. Or else we're in trouble in something like eight years. Right, exactly. But it's not the rational position. There's a sense, uh, I think, among a lot of my uh, old colleagues and folks in the mainstream media that to actually talk in a serious way about those targets, about 80% by 2050 or much less 25% by 2020, is somehow not serious, that it's, that it's not rational, it's not realistic. In fact, uh, people like myself and, you know, Bill McKibben and others who are trying to uh, start this conversation are saying that quite the opposite. To not have that conversation is uh, somewhat insane, um, given what we're faced with. Do you feel, I'm going to ask you a personal question, because I'm Mm -hmm. sitting here, I'm looking at you, your head's about to explode. (laughs) And you talk, you say you talk to scientists who are saying, you know, I'm scared, I'm nervous. Do you feel you've become too close to this topic? You know, how are you feeling? Honestly, Robin, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think you can be too close to this topic. As I told uh, Peter and, and the others in that room at the Globe that day, I was there that day, and I'm here right now for my kids. I have a 12-year-old son and an 8-year-old daughter, and I'm here for them, and I'm here for all of our kids and grandkids. The tone and the, the kind of um, anger and uh, harshness of that piece doesn't make any sense unless you're actually grasping what's really at stake here. Countless lives are at stake Okay, we're talking about our own children's and grandchildren's and all children's futures here. What part of the word emergency do we not understand? <laughs> when Stevenson, a former journalist, and as you say, after this article, uh, that word former will probably stay there. Actually, I take exception to that, if you don't mind me oh. saying. Um, I'm still very much a journalist. Uh, and this goes back to our conversation um, yeah. about uh, the role of media, the role of journalists in something like this. I'm still a journalist. It's entirely possible to be uh, a journalist and an activist at the same time. I'm willing to uh, accept, though, that I'm a former mainstream journalist. Okay. <laughs> Don't blame the president for wrecking the environment when we're the ones sucking it down. When it gets too cold, we head to Arizona and run our air conditioner high. When it rains too much, we run to California and drink the Colorado dry. Outside, there's a thin blue veil between us and the dark of space. These systems are starting to fail. We're losing the human race. United States is set to become the world's largest producer of oil within the next seven years, did, did, exceeding Saudi Arabia. Did you hear about that? Huh? Uh, and the reason we are going to be number one is because of new exploration techniques, uh, or technologies, I should say, which are being used to help find this uh, stuff that is going to smother the planet. Now that's what the International Energy Agency, the IEA, not to be confused with the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA. The International Energy Agency is uh, different. But they're the ones that made this forecast. 
they they produce uh, uh, a report uh, every so often called the World Energy Outlook, and the IEA also predicted that greater oil and natural gas production, as well as more efficient use of energy, will allow the United States, which now we now import about 20% of our energy needs, we will become self-sufficient around 2035. And the IEA said in its report, quote, this is a dramatic reversal of the trend seen in most other energy importing countries. Energy development in the United States are profound and their effects will be felt well beyond North America and the energy sector. At Tom Dispatch today, Tom points out that climate change is getting scarier by the week. And Tom writes, in this all-American year, record wildfires, record temperatures in the continental U.S., an endless summer, a fierce drought that still won't go away, the Frankenstorm Sandy, everything, all of it all descended on us. And these billion-dollar, in terms of damage, weather events are increasingly dime a dozen affairs. And he says, he reports a record 14 of them, these horrific weather events in 2012 so far. So is a linked phenomenon, Tom writes, the continuing rise in the volume of greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide, especially from burning fossil fuels that get pumped into the atmosphere. And the latest figures from uh, 2011 indicate that those gases once again made an appearance in record amounts with no indication that ending this insanity is anywhere on the horizon. It's not there, True Seeker. That's what I'm telling you. It's not going to stop. Capitalism will continue to generate miles and miles and miles of rope that we loop around our necks and collectively hang ourselves until there's nobody left to pull the trapdoor cord. This is the way capitalism works. This, I, I mean, why don't the smart people, not me, not you, but the really smart people that run this goddamn planet understand that? Or maybe they do, and, and they just don't care. Because, you know, they have their heaven to retreat, to retreat to. So in the meantime, here we are on planet Earth, and we are absolutely committing planetary suicide. We are committing planetary suicide, every single one of us. I will do it. I will add to it tomorrow morning. I will, when I get up. And I turn up the thermostat just a little bit, up to 68 degrees in this cold house, and I feel it click on, and I think to myself, you know what you're burning? Uh, natural gas. You know what you're doing to the atmosphere, don't you, Malloy? Well, I'm not doing as bad as India. We're not going to stop this. This is the whole, this is the part, and you know, when I read that thing in the Times about the U.S. to become the number one oil exporter within seven years, the number one global oil exporter within seven years, 
after the import of, uh, of that story sunk in, you know, it occurred to me, with capitalism running the planet, and with the United States being the breeding nest of the most predatory, destructive capitalism, and all of a sudden, we are being told that we are going to become the number one global executioner. There's no stopping it, because there's money. Lots of money. Tons of money for the one one-hundredth or one one-thousandth of one percent that will take the money while the rest of us choke to death. Now, eventually, they'll choke to death, too. This is the part that drives me completely nuts. Now, because of my age, I know full well I'm not going to be around to see the planet choke to death. And because of your age, you may not either. But your grandchildren will, or your children, or your nieces and nephews, or some of your cousins. Or if you're 30 and you're thinking about having kids... And keep in mind, I don't give a goddamn if you're gay or straight. This had nothing to do with orientation. I'm talking about having children, which is a biological imperative. doesn't make any difference what your sexual orientation is. If you're thinking of having children, you are condemning them to choke to death. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the war, won't you? Pentagon has been warned to stand guard against climate surprises, which could throw off its efforts to secure America's future. An expert report prepared for the intelligence community by the National Academy of Sciences, what do they know, warns that the security establishment is going to have to start planning for natural disasters, sea level rise, drought epidemics, and other consequences of climate change. Somebody suckered the Pentagon. The Pentagon already ranks climate change as a national security threat, putting U.S. troops in danger around the, around the world and adding fuel to existing conflicts. More than U 30 U.S. bases are threatened by sea level rise. It has also identified potential new danger zones, such as sub-Saharan Africa. The military is also working to cut back on its fuel costs in an age of budget austerity by installing solar arrays and wind turbines. Really? But this new report suggests strategic planners are going to have to make sweeping adjustments to their planning to take account of climate change over the next decade and beyond. Planning beyond the next decade. 
I'm not sure we're capable of that, folks. Current scenarios could be thrown completely askew by climate surprises, says the report. These could be a single catastrophic event, such as a food price shock. (laughs) Never happened. Or a cascade of reactions that could ultimately put America at risk. It makes sense for the intelligence community to apply a scenario approach in thinking about potentially disruptive events, the report said. What would be the, the alternative approaches? That's right. Uh, it may make sense to consider the security implications of two or three more plausible trends as a way to anticipate risks. Boy, they're going on a limb, aren't they? The study also recommends a crash course for intelligence analysts on the potential threat posed by sea level rise, drought, food shortages, and other consequences of climate change. It is essential for the intelligence community sorry, to understand adaptation and changes in vulnerability to climate events. Welcome to the party. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. United States is poised to become the world's number one exporter of oil in seven years. And and the implications that are inherent in the, in that prediction, in, in that reality. It's not a prediction, it's a reality. Anyway, going back to what Tom uh, at Tom Dispatch writes, he says, with new studies and more data, it seems... Come ever more frightening projections of just how much the temperature of this planet is going to rise by 2100. 2100? Well, so bitch. That's 70, uh, 87 years from now. I don't care about that. <laughs> anyway, as Michael Clare, Tom writes, as Michael Clare, Tom Dispatch, regular and author of The Invaluable, The Race for What's Left, points out. The IEA, International Energy Agency's latest study, suggests a possible temperature rise by century's end of 3.6 degrees Celsius. Now, that should startle the imagination, involving, as it would, the transformation of this planet into something unrecognizably different from the one we all grew up on. But, of course, you won't be here 87 years from now. Neither will I. Neither, probably, will your grandchildren. So why worry about it, right? Of course, there is that interim period. I mean, we don't just all of a sudden live here on planet Earth the way we're living today, dealing with the heat waves and the droughts and so on and so forth, and then all of a sudden, in the year 2100, when you and I are long gone, click, like changing a channel, global temperature pops up to 3.6 degrees Celsius higher than it is today, 
No, no, that's not how it works. It's a gradual process. You know, um, there have been startlingly fast extinctions in the history of this planet. But this one's kind of slow. And it's already, the, you know, what do they call it? The fourth, the fifth, the third great extinction. We're already in it. We're already in it. But it's like the frog that gets put into a vat of cold water and the temperature slowly raised until the frog boils to death. The frog never knows what's happening. Oh, man, I'm just swimming around here in the water. We're already in the extinction period. But we shouldn't talk about that because it's not, you know, it's not. Tom, at this Tom Dispatch, goes on and says, keep in mind that it's by no means the top estimate for temperature disaster, 3.6 degrees Celsius increase by the end of this century. That, that's not the top prediction. A new World Bank report indicates that a rise of 4 degrees Celsius is possible by centuries and a prospect that Bank President Jim Yong Kim termed a, quote, doomsday scenario. That's the head of the World Bank. Four degree Celsius uptick in temperature, a doomsday scenario. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I, you know, I've seen enough apocalyptic movies and disaster movies to understand what that term means. Doomsday scenario. That means death and destruction on a scale, well, you know, whatever. Now, in the meantime... The most comprehensive study to date of how humans have affected the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere predicts that the planet's temperature would rise or could rise by an unimaginable 6 degrees Celsius by 2100. Oh, isn't this fun? This guy, see, the science is all wrong. You can't rely on these scientists. This one says 3.6, this one says 4, this one says 6. Oh, bat squeeze. The hell with it. It's Christmas. Let's go to the mall. And as Tom writes these days, it increasingly looks like we've entered the lottery from hell when it comes to Earth's ultimate temperature. Especially now that a recent report from the United Nations Environmental Program suggests carbon in the atmosphere has increased by 20% since 2000. And that there are, quote, few signs of global emissions falling, end quote. <laughs> so, why not just get drunk or high or whatever and say to hell with it? That's an option. And I think that's going on. Uh, of course, getting drunk, quote, quote, getting high, quote, quote, uh, actually means... Uh, rattling nukes at each other and threatening to invade this one and I'm going to kill you and we're going to rain rockets down on you. Um, the human race, obviously, is mad. Totally insane. Uh, maybe we always have been. Maybe that has been our destiny. Maybe that's what all the great uh, uh, apocalyptic literature has been about. The ultimate insanity of the human race as it manifests, that, that we're insane to begin with. Our brains are too big. There's too much capacity in our brains for us to function on this little closed-in ecosystem that we call planet Earth. We can't do it. Because, you know, our brains lead us into stuff like, hey, let's make nuclear bombs. 
Hey, let's uh, exterminate 8 million people. Let's see if we can do it. Hey, let's invade countries. Son of a bitch. And, and the piece is at that website. Tom Dispatch. It's there as of this morning. And it's a piece by Michael Clare. K-L-A-R-E. And it's entitled World Energy Report 2012, The Good, the Bad, and the Really, Truly Ugly. And I suggest you read it. I suggest you go to Tom Dispatch and read it. Seriously. It's uh, scary. calling from Houston, Texas. I've been a yearly member for, I guess, a couple of years, but I've never called in. I'm calling in response to the December 2nd comments at the end of the podcast. Um, I think I probably represent the type of uh, progressive or uh, liberal that Jay was talking about. I've made a six-figure salary since I was in my mid to late 20s. I'm, I'm 37 now. And I've always been a liberal. I've always been a progressive. And I know that the common wisdom is that people change, that they are liberals when they're in college and that they grow older and make more money. And they, they tend to become more conservative in their politics and change over so that it uh, matches their own self-interest. But I feel like um, I'm the daughter of two immigrants. My mother's from Chile. My father's from Argentina. And they came to the United States in 1972. I was the first one born here, and um, they basically had nothing when they started. I was uh, the product of uh, public education, um, great schools. I went to a public university, University of Texas at Austin. Um, I went to a public physician assistant program in a medical school. Through the grace of uh, student loans, I was able to put myself through school. If it were not through public programs, I was not, I wouldn't be able to have gotten to a six-figure salary in my mid to late 20s. Um, my husband's an attorney. He's the first one to go to college in his family. You know, it, we're products of, of programs. And just because we've been successful, we're no less grateful. And I, I can't imagine ever changing my politics. So I don't know if that's selfless. I still feel myself a beneficiary, even though it's uh, getting up in years now since um, I've benefited. I, I do pay my fair share of taxes. I max out the Social Security payout, and I actually wish that they would increase that maximum. Uh, I don't see why they stop taking out my Social Security. I'd like to make it more solvent. They can continue taking out the Social Security every year. So, anyways... Long-winded answer. The point is, is I, I don't directly benefit anymore from a lot of those programs. I hope that I will still benefit when I reach Medicare age and Social Security age, but I am 100% Democrat. I'm a precinct chair for the Harris County Democratic Party, the 566th precinct, and um, I do what I can. Yeah, love the show. 
keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, piece on Gaza. I just wanted to say that I find your program a little bit depressing sometimes seeing what's going on in the world, but I feel a little better knowing that some of it's exaggerated if this piece reflects a lot of the previous podcasts that you've done. My home sits on the land of the Algonquin Indians, and if they elect a government that does not recognize my right to exist, if they fire missiles into my cities, I expect my military to do something about it. You summed up one of the most complicated geopolitical uh, events of our time and in a totally one-sided fashion. You don't have a clue what's going on over there and it makes me question everything that you've done. Hi Jay, this is Scott calling from Philadelphia. Um, there's something that you said recently that's been bothering me and that was a discussion on population where you implied that, that somehow there's too many people. And um, I'd like to say that as a progressive who believes in science, uh, I can't disagree more. Um, we certainly don't have enough people. The, the goal here should be, and I think for all humans, uh, embracing this goal is necessary. The goal should be getting off of this planet. And that means terraforming Mars. It means terraforming the moon, expanding into our solar system and then moving out into the galaxy. And uh, we don't have enough people doing that. We need, we need more people, billions more people working together towards a future where uh, humans are playing an active role in the universe. And, uh, you know, the more the merrier, the more cooperation, uh, the more progression in that direction, the sooner it's going to happen, and the more amazing life will be forever. So... There you go. That's how, that's my feeling on that. More people, more cooperation. Keep up the good work, Jay. Jay, this is Dave from Olympia, Washington. I wanted to leave a voicemail on your uh, call for stories about pockets of voting, self-interest in voting. Uh, from my perspective, it's it's complicated. It's not a simple yes or no. I mean, I vote for politicians and I support policies that support uh, civil rights, whether they're uh, immigrant rights, LBGTQ, uh, just a secular society that respects our religions, um, because I think it makes society a better place, and I have to live in this society. So not only is it the right thing to do, it's sort of self-interested, because I want to live in the kind of country that respects other people and has tolerance and has tolerance for me. Uh, I vote for environmental policies because I want to you know, continue to live on a viable earth. I don't want global warming to uh, result in the collapse of human civilization within 100 years. Now, I also work in the environmental field, so there is a bit of self-interest there. Uh, environmental regulation, government funding to support uh, those environmental priorities, that is, in a lot of ways, direct pocketbook issue for me. Uh, if, we're, if we're building infrastructure that's going to be protective of the environment, I can help build that, and that's part of my income stream. But it's it's also just because I want to have you know the world to continue uh, to allow our species to continue to survive on it. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't usually think of it as self-interested voting, but at some level, uh, yeah, it, it's a self-interest 
that, that that's the kind of society that I want to live in, that that's the kind of the earth that I want to continue to persist on. So uh, there's my thoughts. I hope they're interesting to you. As always, stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I've definitely received fewer comments on the Gaza episode than I expected, at least so far. And so that, you know, there's the one I played on today's show. And there, there was basically an exact inverse comment uh, to that one that got sent by email where the guy said, you know, although he said he, said he was Jewish and that although parts of the episode just made him angry or sort of drove him crazy, that he overall he thanked me for my balance. And so, you know, the guy today says uh, it's completely one-sided, you know what you're talking about. The other guy says, thanks for your balance. You know, I don't know. What are you going to do? Now, on the on the topic of speaking with conservatives and trying to understand where they're coming from and, and then uh, the extension of that being uh, voting either selfishly or selflessly for, you know, assuming the people listening to the show generally vote progressively, uh, either for Democrats or third parties that uh, are of the progressive mindset. You know, I, one clarification, because a couple people made this this comment, I certainly didn't mean to imply that uh, voting selfishly or selflessly were mutually exclusive. There's obviously a huge gray area in the middle where you do both. And, and I think most people uh, fall into that category. I certainly do. And I want to make one other quick clarification that essentially right after I posted that last episode, I felt bad about how I left that commentary. I, you know, I talked about the the woman who was featured on uh, This American Life who couldn't understand how her interpretation of liberals as being selfish was contradicted by her friend who was very selfless and yet also a liberal and her head was about to explode. And, and you know, I sort of explained my thinking on, on why that was and, and where her thinking about that came from and that maybe she is sort of projecting like, well, you know, I vote for my own self-interest and so, so does everyone else. And so if you're voting liberal for like social welfare programs and social safety net, then you must be voting for your own self-interest to get those programs. And, you know, and so what I implied is that all uh, conservative voters vote uh, selfishly, I guess. And, you know, I think I was essentially doing what that woman was doing. So I want to clarify that although, you know, we have maybe completely different mindsets on it, uh, you know, conservative can vote conservatively thinking that it's completely selfless. And it sort of reminds me of, of the conversation from not too long ago about, you know, how do you prevent uh, poor people in other countries from starving? Well, you don't feed them. They die off, and then there are fewer of them, and so they don't starve. And that's sort of how uh, conservatives talk about the welfare programs in this country. You know, the, famously, uh, there were some people saying, uh, you know, my mother always told me don't feed wild animals because they breed, relating that to people on welfare, welfare comparing them to animals and so on. And, you know, and so it, it, I can imagine conservatives saying like, hey, like, I'm trying to do what's best for the country and what's best for the country is best for everyone. So we need to get rid of all these welfare programs so that we have stronger people and everyone's totally capable of taking care of themselves. And they're not dependent on the government and then everyone will be stronger and better off. And then they convince themselves that that is a very, you know, selfless thing for them to do. You know, <laughs> I, I don't agree with it because I don't think that any of that thinking makes sense. 
But I just want to throw it out there that that is at least a possibility, which is why I sort of made the, the distinction between conservatives in the media and genuine just conservative people who you might have a conversation with. And, you know, I think that essentially goes for liberals in the media too. Uh, those who have a financial interest, they either work for political parties or, or think tanks or whatever, and they get paid basically to say talking points on television, you know, like that's why I believe so much in independent media. You know, th this show isn't funded by anyone except the people who listen to it. And, uh, and, and that that is the case with most of the shows I pull clips from, you know, and so liberal or conservative people on TV, you know, they're getting paid to say what they're saying for the most part. And, you know, maybe they believe what they're saying and maybe they don't, but people in your family, it, it's, I, I would suggest wise to, uh, you know, believe that their intentions are genuine and not, uh, you know, and just, uh, converse with them on, the presumption that they think of themselves as a good person, selfless, generous, uh, wanting to do what's best for the greatest number until they prove otherwise, in which case maybe it's time to leave the room while you still can. So that's all I've got. Just a couple of clarifications on that. Uh, keep the comments coming in either on this conversation or on Israel or anything else you feel like talking about. The number again, 206-202-3410. And that's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the show survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black, black, black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right, burning on a shining Take you out